I felt, this was my own subjective experience, that I moved forward out of some sort of issues of stuckness in three sessions with him as the same amount as those nine sessions of therapy that I had done with a conventional therapist. Welcome to the Navia Hypnosis Podcast, where we explore hypnosis as a powerful tool for mental health and well-being. Shalom. How are yes. you today? It is. I am doing great. It's good to be here. Friday is my favorite day of the week. I have a mug that yeah. says Friday is my second favorite F word. And, uh, <laughs> and it sums up my relationship with Friday. I think it goes back to uh, when I was even a kid. I went to a very intense school. And from a young age, it ingrained in me this like insane work ethic of like always be studying. And so if I'm completely off, like on a weekend, I start feeling guilty. It's a very Jewish behavior uh, to uh, just or Protestant or however you want to take it. And um, so I need to always be doing something. So Friday is that like a half day for me. So it's got like this mix of like I got stuff done, but I also chilled out. And if every day could look like a Friday, I think that would be the dream, including the weekends. And I have this thing that Friday's weather is always the best. I mean, it could be snowing up, but it's the best weather. So Friday. Yeah. Well, so it's interesting because you in Israel grew up with like a slightly different weekend, right? Yeah. It's it's not like because it's a half Friday and then Saturday and then but everybody's back to work on Sunday. Exactly. So Isn't Israel that... has a six day work week overall. Um, there's yeah. no such thing as Sundays. And I grew up religious. So the one day off of the weekend, you're very limited. You can't travel places, you can't watch TV. Um, that was the one day that was off. And, and Friday is a half day only by necessity. Like the school that I went to was so intense that they squeezed every hour that they could even out of the Fridays. So um, on the, in the summers when, when uh, it was all about sundown. So when sundown would come on Friday night, um, it would come in later because of daylight savings. And we would actually go to school till 3.30 in the afternoon. And in the winter time, when um, the sunset would come in earlier, we would actually finish at 1. So it fluctuated on the time of the year, and they would get every hour that they could. I also had two hours on, on Saturdays that I could go to as well uh, for to school, right. which is pretty unusual. But I generally, um, generally avoided that. It was somewhat optional. Okay. And then right back into it on Sunday. Right back into it. I mean, to be perfectly transparent with you... Um, I've had to work, I'm very transparent about the amount of like mental health issues that I've had to work with over the years myself. It influences my work with clients as well. And mm -hmm. when I dissect very broadly the trifecta of like trauma that I've had to deal with, a huge slice of it is the school and the culture that I was raised in. Um, mm -hmm. I, I describe it as the three layers. The bottom layer was Israel as a country is an extremely intense and politically complicated uh, place with a lot of, you know, wars and even around the wars, it's just intensity and everybody has PTSD pretty much. And then that was the, that, <laughs> was, hear, the, yes. that was the broad strokes, the entire country. And um, culturally, I was a very Anglo, very American sensibilities and manners in a country that is quite Eastern. It's the Middle East at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how many Europeans try to live there. It's still Middle East. And then the second layer was the subculture of um, very religious Orthodox Judaism and then a very fanatical school that my parents chose to send me to for 11 and a half years. And that place was so intense. Uh, I describe it as having like been raised in, in a prison, like every day from mm. 7.30 in the morning. By sixth grade, I was finishing at six o'clock at night. By ninth grade, I was finishing at 9.30 at night. And by 
12th grade, which is arbitrary. It's not like you finish in Orthodox communities, 12th grade, 13th grade, it's all the same. The grades don't matter mm-hmm. and you stay there forever until you get married. By 12th grade, I was all of like 17 years old or so, and I was finishing at uh, 11 o'clock at night. And that's pretty wow. normal, but they also didn't yeah. have any vacations. So it was every single day of the year. I would finish fifth grade, and the next day I was in sixth grade. Um, there were even Jewish holidays, which traditionally people do have even a few weeks off around the holidays, where you had school during the holidays. So it was a very, very intense place to be stuck in, in a place that was also not catering to any of my needs. There was uh, The teachers yeah. were very emotionally repressed, and um, you know that, that colors that part of it. And then the third layer was my parents and their flaws. There was a lot of uh, mental health issues and stuff like that in the home and the intensity of the home. So that's like the, the triple part trifecta of my upbringing, which influenced um, a lot of what I then ended up struggling with for years. And I've been on a healing journey for about eight years and I've come a very long way. So I'm very grateful to, uh, towards that arc. So that was a bit of a tangent, but uh, hopefully interesting. That's a really interesting tangent. As someone, so I grew up homeschooled. Okay. Right. And yeah. so it's always interesting to me to hear different people's experience of school. Right. And, you know, one thing that I always thought was so interesting was that um, so many schools, even in the West, in America, they look like jails. Right. Right. And um, so I think it's interesting that you were certainly sounds like on the extreme end of that prison like aspect of it. Very intense, very and that very constraining. I'm curious, like just working with people. Is that actually a common point that you can share with? Because I know a lot of people struggle with that school age, regardless of where they grew up and such. Like, there's a lot of challenges that people go through at that very critical point in their life that then they have to start unpacking. And so much of that is spent in this environment, this very constrained environment of school. Right. Um, you know, I'm just sort of following the tangent here. It's an interesting tangent. Like, how how do you feel that that comes in to even just general, like other challenges you hear people facing and what they're unwinding? Yeah, um, it's rare. Like somehow for the average person, from my experience is um, in the in the any uh, it's true for me, too. In the way of school versus home, home always wins. It's like our parents as caregivers and what we look to them for so much outweighs the importance of what we do receive and the importance of what we don't receive um, and the experience throughout, that is almost always still the general theme um, mm. that, that emerges from most people that I work with. There are anecdotes I have here and there. People have traumatic incidents, sometimes with teachers, sometimes with um, fellow you know, classmates and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. There's definitely those types of episodes. Um, but overall, it seems like um, school for the average person seems to be at, le- at least somewhat a certain amount of triviality to it. There's a certain um, a lack of importance. I mean, I guess if you're finishing at 3.30, there's a fair amount of time every day where you're just not in school. Then you've got summer and that ends up, I think many people would tell you that the school experience was like not great or that they didn't yeah. get much out of it. That's a, a very common theme. But I think like the, the classic do no harm kind of testament and i think schools oftentimes do harm so i think we're talking mostly like um you know hopefully a decent school an average school and up kind of thing 
most people then will reflect on it as I'm like, okay, whatever. I had mostly, um, you know, inadequate teachers and occasional amazing teacher who really nurtured mm -hmm. me. And I remember that teacher that one time, sixth grade, I had a writing teacher and she informed me. And I think that's really sad. I mean, continuing on this tangent, um, there are a few areas of life that I really would like to see changed in the world. And I would rebuild schooling from the ground up. I mean, I'm not the first oh, to say yes, this, yes. but um, I'm a huge proponent of um, financial literacy. That's one thing that I'm uh, mm. huge that must be taught in school and then uh, emotional intelligence. And mm -hmm. it's crazy how much schools focus on things like, did you or did you not pass this grade while lowering the, the, the standards of what grades you need to even get, but that still is the only metric. And then things like being kind or understanding yourself or navigating mm -hmm. social dynamics, which I think are more important than any piece of information you do or don't know, seem to be completely neglected. We're just going to put 30 kids in a box and get through yes. the day. So the entire way in which schooling is structured is, is just completely flawed. Um, and I send my kids to a Montessori school with that in mind. And the fascinating thing to me is to me, it's a given Montessori isn't for everybody. Some people need a bit more structure, but for people who are more sensitive or creative, Montessori is like a really natural place. And it's not like it doesn't have its own problems and maybe even shortcomings. But I think overall, you see a kid from Montessori, they're in a whole other range of quality, almost of, of emotional intelligence, ability to navigate, uh, and we could talk more about that. But one side pet peeve of mine is that um, when you talk about like tax exemption, all the money that I pay for Montessori, I have to pay after taxes. Like there is the, the government basically says uh, the uh, yes. government says oh, yes. we gave you a public school. It was perfectly adequate. And if you're going to send yeah. your kids to <laughs> private school, well, you just got to pay out of pocket because that's the way it is. You can't even get like a tax break for it, like child care. And, yeah. and I look at that. I'm like. What you have going on here, this thing that I could supposedly send my kids to, it's not, it's not, it's a non-starter. It isn't even an option. It doesn't even register for me as a thing that I could do to my children. So yeah. all of this out-of-pocket paying that I'm doing is is literally to me a necessity. So it's a bit interesting how governments, you know, think of themselves as huh, uh, checking some boxes. Checking some boxes, but also then constraining everybody. You know, like I think that's one of the big things that most of us have to deal with in the West, right? It's like precisely this uh, aspect of culture that you're mentioning, this sort of thing of like, we have these performance metrics that we have to hit in school. We have these, you know, th there's, th there's processes and there's all this other stuff. Yet I think the reality, at least that I've experienced, is that the majority of the challenges that we then face through most of our life are much more related to the emotional um, aspect, emotional social component of life. I mean, you know, the hardest, most tension-filled moments in a working, in a workplace, in, you know, your career are nearly always filled with, with right, emotional social events, much more than like, the actual detail events of, oh, how do you add one and one? Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that those are useless, but there is certainly this uh, like pushover to the side, all this, all the emotional social stuff, which then leaves all of us sort of in the place of, okay, let's start unpacking this yeah. so I can just like actually even survive through my day, right? Exactly. Much less try and start like taking off the layers that I accumulated 
over yeah. the years of the entire system. Yeah. I used to be very jealous of like, oh, I wish I'd gone to like a regular public school or something like that. Um, and it's true. I think I would have done better, but it would have been, I think it wouldn't have been as glamorous as I imagine it. I think it would have been more of a, a, a less harm. It would have been a harm reduction, what I call getting to zero kind of situation where I still probably would have had to get the majority of my education outside of school, which I've done anyways. Uh, but I think I wouldn't have had to battle so many internal demons on the way to getting there. Yeah. Well, so diving in there, actually before right, we started recording, I was asking you about, like, what was your journey to hypnosis? We've, there's, just, there's like so much more we can say on, yeah, this, yeah, yeah. on this entire area, um, which leaves plenty of time for future conversations. But um, the unpacking all these various layers of ourselves, like how did you arrive at hypnosis to, st or well, maybe not to start with, but like how did you arrive yeah. at hypnosis? So it's a good question. Um, and it's an interesting arc how, how it emerged for me. So I was interested in psychology from uh, as a teenager already. Um, and I think I was drawn to like helping others, which... Uh, <laughs> which is interesting also considering how messed up I was, but it, sometimes it's almost a prerequisite in the healing profession. So yeah, <laughs> I was qualified in that regard. Um, <laughs> and so from a very young age, I kind of knew and I angled towards that. There was this program um, specifically for religious therapists in Jerusalem out of an all-girls school called the Yerushalayim. And the founders uh, saw a need. They were trying to give their, their, the women who studied at this uh, seminary, this post-high school seminary, uh, actual professions. So they were teaching them computer programming and stuff like that. But they also saw a need specifically for better mental health services in the Orthodox Jewish community specifically, which is a more insular community, which uh, has specific needs. You need to be very attuned to their culture. They may, um, they, they'd be very wary of seeing an outside secular therapist. So they were, so this school said, let's train our own and offer this to the community. And they actually opened a family therapy center on campus. And uh, we're providing that services and training at the same time, similar to like you imagine a training hospital, but for mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and then they said, well, we're, we're serving this much needed need in the community, but it's a very segregated by gender community. So now all the women are serving women, but the men need help. What are we going to do with that? So they took their existing infrastructure and they created this also for men as well. So I would go to an all girls school, sit in their bomb shelter basement and get trained by uh, very good therapists who were training me practically in these skills around mental health. They actually had two tracks. You could either just get a certificate or pay a little bit extra and get a master's in clinical sociology. And that's what I ended up doing. Um, it was actually, How I old really were you enjoyed the, at that so, time. What was it? How old were you at that time? I was about 23. I had just gotten married. Okay. It was what I did. I got married really young at the age of 22. And within the first year of marriage, I was going weekly to these uh, classes and, and attending and working on that. And I found the psychology mm -hmm. part really fascinating, especially psychopathology and counseling theories. Um, and then they recommended to me that as part of my training, I also go to therapy myself, which I saw as completely unnecessary because I was so uh, well adjusted. But I agreed because I thought it would be useful from the... Because uh, you had to. You had to check, you had to check, check the box. that box. You had to, you had to go. <laughs> so... I went there and discovered I wasn't quite as perfect as I thought. And there was a lot of good work. And I did remember being in therapy for about nine months and, you know, really making progress. And then I happened to have the opportunity to work with a local sort of maverick Russian-Canadian rabbi who was my neighbor, actually, um, who did 
this unique version of hypnotherapy, basically. Uh, I was first familiar with him. I grew up around him. He was in the same institute that my parents were involved in. Um, but he'd put out a book with like guided meditations. And as a teenager, I'd already listened to it and all these sort of interesting stuff. And his work was highly spiritual. So he would be doing hypnosis with you, but he would also be bringing God into the picture and making it a really kind of transcendental experience. Now, I say to this day, you know, if you believe in God and you bring God into your therapy healing, well, that's a very empowering experience. God's going to help you heal. Mm -hmm. God's going to support you. And, you know, when you're going through a difficult time, you have this, this omnipotent being at your side. If that works for you, it, it's great. But his was really baked into the curriculum. And so at the time mm -hmm. I was very religious and I did, I ended up doing three sessions with him over the course of several months. And I felt this was my own subjective experience that I moved forward out of some sort of issues of stuckness in three sessions with him as the same amount as those nine sessions of therapy that I had done with a conventional therapist. And I was like, wow, oh, okay, okay, there's something going on here where there's a level of intensity that is happening and the process that's unfolding in this hypnosis type of stage compared to regular therapy. And so I actually um, organized a small training, meaning a small cohort of people to train with this rabbi. And we trained for him for nine months every week. Um, started out getting the curriculum from him and practicing on each other and acquired this body of knowledge around um, this spiritual hypnosis that he was practicing. Now, an interesting anecdote is that in Israel, hypnosis is illegal. Israel is a country that's got missiles raining down, people driving on the sidewalk, and it's chaos. But the thing that they decided to enforce is hypnosis. Hypnosis. And you can only do hypnosis if you're like a dentist or a doctor or like a licensed psychologist, right? Where So so they highly enforce that. So the problem is it's very hard to define hypnosis sometimes, right? Because as we spoke about last time, it's mm -hmm. a state you can enter very often, very easily. So it becomes semantics a lot of the times. And so we played with those semantics and we called ourselves like meditation coaches or spiritual healing guides. And that was a way to basically bypass the entire issue. But I did feel quite oppressed by like that sort of limitation. So... Um, but it was very experiential, yeah. it sounds like. Very experiential? Sort of hopping in the sense of like what you experienced. Yeah. Of like the connection with hypnosis was that you, you dove into it. Like, was it an immediate thing that like after the first session you were like, oh, there's something here? Because you said you did three sessions and in those three sessions, it was like nine months yeah. worth of other practice. What did was there something like immediately that you felt, or did it take a couple of sessions to really sort of the light bulb to come on? No, it was immediate. It's just the cumulative immediate, and it's just cemented it and snowballed it. Um, but there's something so these sessions, um, and that's what drew me to them. They stand on their own. Where um, the way I describe it is, a lot of times you go to a therapist, and it might take weeks to sort of unpack the issue or get to the root of the issue or even divulge the issue, depending on your comfort mm. with the therapist and stuff like that. Hypnosis allows you to go so deep, so fast, that there's usually both the discovery and the resolution of the issue in, in, a, in a, at least a microcosm of it in a single session, in an hour and a half, right? And that Shoot. is sort of almost unheard of. So I'll have a client who comes to me with a presenting issue, but they want to know why it's happening for them. And we'll literally both understand why in a single session and basically arrive at some sort of sense of closure around that issue in a single session. And again, this feels like psychology. This isn't um, 
conventional hypnosis, we can talk about the difference between what most hypnosis sessions look like and what the hypnosis that I do looks like. But um, that is, it, it feels like therapy on steroids. It feels very uh, like it just all happened. So there's this almost instantaneous, you walk out and like colors are brighter and you have this sense of relief and an expansiveness in your body. Like you actually can take up more space in the world mm. or in yourself. And that's the thing you just walk away with right away. And I did this over and over again. And I was like, wow, okay, this is something else completely. Now I got to hustle and make this training happen. Yeah, that's fascinating. Were you going to then you the other training, like the, the psychology training at the same time as you were experiencing the power of hypnosis? And like, so, how did you, what meaning was there like, I guess what I'm interested in, was there like a nearly balancing act? Like, you know, like sometimes you see something really powerful. But then nearly like you go over to a different environment and you have to nearly act like it doesn't exist, you know? Right, right. And you have to juggle. So the timeline was interesting. And I will say that a couple points on that, I guess, that come to my mind. Um, I'll talk about the theory first. I'll, in the rest of the world, outside of Israel, it's actually really easy to become a hypnotist, okay? You do a fairly short training. You learn some very interesting techniques, but they kind of sit in, in a vacuum. And you can become a hypnotist and you go out there and you work with people. I consider it a huge advantage that I have uh, like a classical therapy training behind what I'm doing, whether that's mm -hmm. in how I work with people and what informs me and I, my understanding. And again, um, I could always learn more and there's always more to learn, but spending all that time learning to be a therapist first and then building the hypnosis on top of it, I think really creates the best of both worlds and allows me to approach people's clients with a more holistic uh, issues, sorry, with a more holistic view. And I actually took that mm -hmm. approach to the field. When I chose to train other practitioners, I specifically first selected people with a mental health training background. I could have taken anybody and trained them, but I felt that people with that mental health background would have a huge leg up as far as what they already know, and also will be perceived as more um, knowledgeable and authoritative when they go out there to offer this to people, which is important because we are dealing in the world of mental health. For the timeline of it all, I actually, I had, again, I struggled with so many different mental health things. I was at the time in the beginning of a marriage that actually wasn't going well. On top of that, I had basically a lot of undiagnosed ADHD symptoms, not to mention just general PTSD and anxiety. So, and I had gone to, as we spoke about, a completely unconventional school. So what happened mm -hmm. was after a year of regular therapy training where I was just learning therapy and I was so into it, this is classic ADHD, I was loving it and I was doing great. But as soon as a subject emerged, like statistics that I was unprepared for. And I actually love math, but I didn't have much of a math background. And it was a teacher who I didn't connect with. And as soon as things weren't like optimally lined up, I completely crashed and I actually dropped out of the program. And it was after that, I dropped out of the program, attended my rabbinical training. I was training to be a rabbi. And alongside that, I believe was when I actually did the hypnosis training as well. So it came, first came therapy, then came hypnosis, which I'm actually very glad that that was the order. And I actually dropped out of my therapy training for over 10 years. And it's actually just last fall that I finally completed my master's degree. And I really only had like a few courses left to do, but it took 10 years of personal growth and learning about ADHD and developing as a person to finally be able to go back there and with the resources I needed to power through. I got myself a tutor. I did all these things right that I just didn't have the bandwidth for back then. And so I actually completed my master's degree years later, but really had all the knowledge already then because of how it's structured. Yeah. I mean, it's also a testament to what you experience with hypnosis. 
right? Of, uh, or it sounds like it was because you stayed, it sounds like you stayed involved with hypnosis. I don't know what capacity that was. Like what, what capacity was that? Did you stay involved? Like, did you, I mean, you were setting up the training like immediately after you were experiencing it. Right. So it sounds like you knew there was some experience that you had. You were like, okay, like this is helping me make progress. And then yeah, I got so to bring it was interesting because at the time I, I was working with, we would do some practicing on each other as colleagues during training, but actually, um, I, there was very few people I could go to in the world to do more of this hypnosis stuff, except, except for my trainer who was quite expensive. So I actually couldn't afford to do too much of this too often. Uh, at some points, I, I actually, with colleagues, we would practice on each other. But I remember it actually not happening so often. And when it was, it was a huge relief. I'll give you one specific example. I started a web design agency because I worked in tech for years. And I would, it was very new to me and very overwhelming. And I remember I would get these client projects and I would procrastinate on them for weeks like eight weeks of a client, sorry, eight weeks of a client waiting for me to get me into a website and I just couldn't emotionally, I was stuck. And I remember asking a colleague, could you just sit with me and let's do this work? And we did it. And I unstuck myself in a single session after eight mm -hmm. weeks of procrastinating. Just another great example of, of it coming mm -hmm. in. But it actually wasn't so present in my life as much as I would have even liked or benefited from. Um, but I actually got trained in it and I started doing it with others. I had rabbinical training at that point and I started um, facilitating workshops at local uh, religious schools and at local universities. And things started taking off and I had a certain amount of clients. But what happened shortly thereafter is I actually ended up having like a personal breakdown. My marriage ended and as part of that came a crisis of faith and I completely left religion behind. And emotionally, I was in no place to continue working with people. There was so much sorting through the shambles of my life and rebuilding them from scratch. Uh, leaving religion when it's a fundamentalist kind of encompassing all areas of your life type of thing. It, it, you kind of really learn yourself from scratch, which is what I needed to do. And the other challenge was that that hypnosis training was deeply intertwined with religion because that's how it was taught to me. So not only was I emotionally not ready to work with people, but also that curriculum, that core part that until two days ago had been like really part of who I was very yeah. abruptly. I hated God. Like God was a thing before that I was bringing into therapy. And now I wanted nothing to do with God. And so becoming an And hypnosis was inherently part of that. It was that. built in. Exactly. Like it was built in. Exactly. Oh, fascinating. Okay. And so I spent several years just healing, just really landing on my feet. I moved to another country. I established myself financially more. I moved my family over with me, did a bunch of uh, healing processes for myself. And about three years ago, started feeling ready again to get back into this hypnosis stuff. I started working pro bono part-time with clients, specifically actually focusing on other people who had left religion because there's a lot of religious trauma that underlies people's experience. So I wanted to give back mm -hmm. and help other people along that journey that I'd been on. And I went through a process of really kind of rebuilding the curriculum from scratch, finding all the parts in that hypnosis work that I'd done that's actually universal hypnosis techniques. That, was, mm. that is not part of a package of spiritual hypnosis. And so much of it is. And I kind of deconstructed it, rebuilt it, learned the vocabulary that conventional hypnotists use to describe things, right? Came up with some of my own vocabulary to describe parts of what I do that most hypnotists aren't doing out there and really combining it into something that is unique and that I'm sort of making my own. And that is a, an ongoing journey still finding the right language, figuring out how do you present this to people? How do you convey to somebody something that is so inherently experiential? 
it, I, 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 the challenge I describe that is it a as, challenge. right? Yes, it's like describing a, a drug trip. This type of work is the yeah. closest thing to drugs without doing drugs. And the same way, if you were on an acid trip, it would be impossible for you to describe really what was going on. Um, mm -hmm. You would be hard pressed to do the same thing here. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I, I think that is really the challenge around experiential practices. Yeah. I, they have a dramatic impact on your life. Like you mentioned that moment of getting unstuck, right? On a project. I don't even think that most people realize that there are tools out there to help them on those very practical moments in life. And that so much of it is we've like over intellectualized it as opposed to just like getting back to that experience. But then one of the barriers to that is even the language to describe the experience that you can communicate because if somebody hasn't experienced it yet, right? It's like, well, how do they, how do you communicate that to them? Exactly. Like I imagine that that's like, that sounds like, well, that's one of the, one of the um, development processes of, of, of even as you ventured into helping other people with it. It's really, how do you think about the language? How do you pass on that experience? Exactly. And, and I think the challenge with language, is, there's a couple fronts. First of all, I don't want to toot my own horn too much because it does, might not sound believable. So for that extent, like I've, I've gotten testimonials from other people saying that this was more profound than therapy because I don't want to be the one who stands there and says, I'm going to be better than therapy because I have an agenda. So getting other people to say it is, is a big part of it. To me, and this is a larger conversation, um, I really, my, one of my goals in all of this is to elevate hypnosis from what's considered by many people to be a very niche, kind of like, I don't know, I went to therapy and it didn't work, so I went to hypnosis. Or I saw this mm. weird guy doing hypnosis on stage, and now I got to see a guy who does hypnosis as a clinical thing. I want to mm. take it from that space and have it be seen as a perfectly legitimate form of therapy similar to CBT or IFS or all these you know buzzwords that are all around us. Um, mm -hmm. And to do that, it, it's a fine line where I don't want to use two spiritual languages. There's a whole spiritual mm. chakra-oriented kind of space where I, I try to avoid that because some people are really drawn to it. But the main general population, um, I think, might get turned off by that. And that's always a concern. Yeah. So to walk the mainstream line. And I don't want to get too clinical. I don't want to use language that is too hypnosis niche. Because hypnosis has its own vocabulary separate from how therapists would talk. And I'm always trying to say, how can I keep this in basically a lay therapist's terms um, and mm -hmm. bring it all back into that container as much as possible? And it really sounds like to be able to connect that to people's experience so that they can find an entry point into it and so that they can experience it. Right. I really, and, and this is a final, this is the, the challenge. Um, I'm not a licensed therapist, so I can't say, come to me for therapy and I will do hypnosis on you, right? That's not fair yeah. and not think, even though in many ways it is extremely therapeutic, right? And that's this okay. weird line that hypnosis kind of lives in. Hypnosis lives in a gray zone between life coaching and therapy. And the National Guild of Hypnotists, who are one of the bigger regulating bodies, there's no one regulating body in hypnosis, but they're one of the biggest. They've got this clause that says things like, um, hypnosis is used to treat ordinary people for ordinary problems. It's not therapy. And I look at that and I say, what's an ordinary person and what's an ordinary problem, right? So what, one thing they're trying to say is like, you know, psychosis. We're not going to work with you if you're psychosis or if you're like mentally... Um, hospitalized or something like that. Yeah. But short of that, who isn't walking around the world today without some sort of 
clinical diagnosis around anxiety, depression, ADHD, something like that. Everybody has that. And if you go down to the root of it, it's almost always trauma, right? So you're mm -hmm. ending up doing trauma work if you're going to do anything of significance. So I feel that sometimes there's this weird doublespeak that oftentimes has to occur because hypnosis wants to live on its own. It doesn't want to be too regulated. doesn't want to only be limited mm -hmm. to therapy. And I think that's a good thing. But on the other hand, to do that and now needs to be pretend maybe to be what it isn't. And part of that is that some hypnosis can be very life coachy. Uh, but mm. there's a spectrum that you get in the training where you could go more analytical and even do regression work where you're actually revisiting past emotional experiences. And so no one's telling you not to do that. And how is that really different mm. than therapy? It's an eternal question. But there's so many gray zones in mental health anyways that this is just one of many that's existing out there. Yeah, I, I keep coming back to the language where it seems like you view it really as a powerful tool because you and I don't know if that's the, you know, tweak my language there. Uh, but I remember, you know, we were talking about states of consciousness and dropping in and that it's a state of consciousness within which once you're there, there's a lot of different opportunities right. to do different, different work. And so sure. it's not just one thing, even though if people have sort of attached it, a um, lot of people have attached it to a particular Right. A lot of people have attached way of it. working. People have attached A to stage hypnosis. That's the common like visuals of it. And then right. people have uh, so the standard hypnotists have attached it to a highly behavioral and prescriptive approach. Um, I I had an experience with a local hypnotist that I went to just because I wanted to experience it. And anecdotally, I haven't had enough experience to tell you that that actually maybe wasn't such a good experience because I've only done that once. Other people have told me that it could have been better. But in this case, I went there. And I was sort of lay there and had scripts read to me. And like, you no longer want to be this. And you now will find yourself being that. And that is very common in hypnosis because you're open to suggestion. You're open to new ways of being. And somebody standing there and saying, hey, maybe you'll become this. Maybe you'll become that. Or more prescriptively, like you will become this. That can influence you. Okay. So there is space for that. However, um, I'm a big believer. I'm beyond just the baseline of hypnosis, which I'm very excited about, I am a believer in the set of specific therapeutic practices that I do with my clients once I've put them through that initial mm. trance state. The, the brand of hypnosis that I'm doing is quite different than a lot of other work out there. It borrows from a lot of other modalities. So we haven't recreated the wheel, but we've kind of assembled the best of many worlds into an experience that is far more similar to therapy in many ways. It feels like therapy. Mm -hmm. Now, I still, I used to be very gung-ho, like, oh, hypnosis or bust, right? I have a more nuanced approach now. It, it's one, it's a very powerful tool amongst many that people can use to heal themselves. Psychedelics still do something biologically to your brain that takes things to another level, although I feel hypnosis takes you as close as it can without any substances. Um, one thing that I point out as, as a limitation of hypnosis is around... Um, I describe it as interpersonal versus intrapersonal. So when you go to a therapist, um, you are practicing a dynamic with another person. I'm talking to you. I'm learning to be vulnerable to you. I am, uh, you know, having what I'm saying reflected back to me. I'm getting a third person to um, look at me and tell me what they're noticing. Hypnosis is actually a very personal journey. It's intrapersonal. It's a journey into your own self with me as a guide. And what that means is several things. First of all, it's very, very important. Most people don't get enough of this, even in mm -hmm. therapy. 
because they're so preoccupied. I'm looking at the therapist and I'm trying to make sure that you like me or whatever else is going on. And it's, yeah. and it's distracting from what's going on inside of me, which is a mm. huge clue to what's actually happening. Um, but beyond that, the flip side is, interestingly enough, you might argue that it needs less training because a therapist sometimes has to sit there and tell you what they see and come up with complicated theories about what's going on. Well, when it's intrapersonal, you're coming up with the issues, you're finding them, and you're also mm -hmm. coming up with your solutions. It is so self-guided and therefore empowering, right? That it really puts mm -hmm. the responsibility back right in the client's hands. And I'm standing on the side. I'm like, you did all of this, right? I'm just a facilitator. And, and I hope that you walk away out of the session with the sense of what you're capable of doing with just a little bit of context or, or, or you know, some, some framework. But you get better and better at basically navigating your own emotional internal world. And that is hugely important, but it isn't everything. Because people who do need to trust other people, they might benefit from still, you know, working with a therapist simultaneously. Yeah, that's something we're going to have to dive deeper sure. into. Like, yeah. I think the actual experience of it, of talking through that would be really interesting because like many people, I'm sure, you know, I definitely spent the majority of my life in a mode where I didn't even know that there was an inner world that existed, you know? Yeah. And so um, our experience of that was, that was quite eye-opening for me, right? The first time I even really recognized that. Um, so I think there's so much more conversation that exactly. we'll dive into in the future yeah. on exactly that. I would love to hop off there and sort of, uh, you know, get deeper and deeper. In this, exactly. Yeah. There's a world. few principles that we can talk about in the future that I guide the type of work that I do with clients. Um, and they're like what I believe I would call them almost like the pillars of emotional intelligence, right? These, these <laughs> basic things that I think everybody needs to understand about themselves in order to better navigate their own internal emotional world. And I have this dream one day of, again, bringing this hypnosis and these types of ideas to people in a variety of formats. One of them, I would love to do some sort of like high school program. Come in, work with high schoolers. They're at an age where navigating their emotions is so important and convey a few of these core principles that can completely change how you experience your life moving forward. So you're, you're old enough to start exploring that. You're young enough that it will still inform a huge part of your life. Um, and it's something that I, I wish everybody had just these few principles with them. And if I could just convey that to people over the course of a few sessions, that itself is worth it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and also the, the practicality. Like I keep hearing within that the practicality of the experience, right? Like meaning this, the practical impact that it can have yes. on your life. Exactly. I and, mean, and so it's not like some intangible, you know, thing out there right it, it can really like it can help you solve yes exactly uh, but but it, interesting enough it does go from the inside out especially in my work a lot of hypnosis True. is very behavioral it's like all about did you or did you not quit smoking but for me oh, it's about yeah. did the thing inside you shift so that you are now able to quit smoking and that will manifest in all sorts of other ways too in your life as well because it is very much inside out but i do want you to experience yourself and the world differently from here on forward and for you to take these tools with you um, in the future. And this all of hypnosis agrees. Hypnosis is a short-term therapeutic modality, right? We're not there for you to see us every day for years. That's generally not the way it's done. You'll, you'll get what you need from us and you'll move on into your life. And maybe you'll come in for a tune-up in a couple months. But typically, the goal is to get you past whatever it is that you want to get past actually very quickly. And I see that as a source of a lot of hope for people. People come to me and they feel tremendously stuck. Maybe they're, you know, 
post-COVID depression for, for two years already, and, and they're just really feeling stuck. And I tell them, you could feel a lot better after the end of a single hour and a half session. And who would want that, right? That's like this mm -hmm. magic wand pill thing. Like you could feel better about your life and more hopeful about your future in a single session. And it's pretty much guaranteed. I don't like to guarantee anything, but I tell people like, this is, this is the standard that I set for myself. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Okay. A lot more to follow Absolutely. in future conversations. Thank you, Brad. Shalom again. Thank you. Amazing. Phenomenal. And um, yeah, we'll continue the conversation. Sounds great. Thank you, Brad.